Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It's 11.07 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It's the 14th of September, 2022. And this is episode 615 of Bitcoin. And let's do some boostograms, guys. Let's do them right now. Letter 6173. Stack sats. Do pull-ups. Back up a local copy of Defense Distributed 3D Printing Files. That's for a striper boost, 7,777 Satoshis. I got uh, this one from FW7 says, Firearms owners have needed to stand up for decades. Can't depend on them to be vocal. Mm-hmm. 420 sats. That's the pot boost. Weed boost. Marijuana boost. He's right, though. Uh, we need to be a little bit more vocal about it. But in these days and times... I mean, you just kind of, everything's taken your your life in your hands if you actually defend anything that the Constitution of the United States says. It's, It's weird. It's just, it's such a clown world. It's such a shit show out there, man. Uh, ASB underscore best for 100 sat says, good. (laughs) <laughs> i got a 50 sat boost from user lots of numbers says stack hard your sats of course absolutely absolutely uh spiral says uh for 25 sats great show thanks well thank you man i appreciate it i love doing the show i love doing it for you guys i am still number one on fountain app because of a massive glitch. So I'm just suck, soaking it in while it lasts, buddy. Just soaking it in while it lasts. Now, let's get on to this shit. Let's talk about Craig Wright and the Hodel to Not trial. Uh, you got This is going to be day three of a seven-day trial, and we have at least one set of analyses coming through uh, Cheyenne Ligon out of Coindesk. Uh, Craig Wright won't give cryptographic proof he's Satoshi. His lawyers say at Huddledenot trial, Oslo, Norway. This is all going down in Oslo. Lawyers for Craig Wright, the Australian computer scientist and scammer, best known, sorry, they didn't say scammer. I said scammer. The Australian computer scientist, best known for claiming to be the inventor of Bitcoin, said he will not will not provide any new cryptographic proof that he is Satoshi Nakamoto during his trial against Bitcoiner Huddleanot. The trial kicked off here on Monday. The Norwegian trial is one of two simultaneous lawsuits centered around a series of tweets from March 2019 in which Huddleanot expressed doubt about Wright's claims to be Satoshi. During his opening statements on Tuesday, Wright's lead attorney, Halvar Menschaus, told the court that establishing Wright's ownership of Satoshi's private keys isn't enough. Quote, Craig Wright is of the perception that to sign with the private key, one block or the other is not conclusive. Jesus Christ. 
is not conclusive evidence of whether he is Satoshi or not. Uh, Manshouse told the court, quote, it's never one thing or the other is sufficient. You need several elements. You need the whole package, end quote. I have no idea what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> he's not signing. Oh, geez, this is so bad already. Manchus also read numerous excerpts from Andrew O'Hagan's 2016 article, quote, The Satoshi Affair, end quote, to show that, in addition to not feeling like cryptographic evidence would be enough to silence his critics, Wright has also struggled emotionally with the burden of proving his identity as Satoshi. It would take 10 minutes and a single signature, Craig. 10 minutes and a single signature. Oh, Jesus. Uh, using passages from the Satoshi Affair, Manchus argued that Wright has difficulty trusting people and suffered extreme emotional pain and exhaustion after a private signing session intended to prove his ownership of Satoshi's private keys with Bitcoin developer Gavin Andreessen in 2016 that caused him to break down in tears. You see where this is going. Instead of cryptographic proof, Manchus attempted to convince the court of his client's identity as Satoshi with other pieces of evidence, including a personal history allegedly in line with the creation of Bitcoin. Manchus' opening statement also leaned heavily on Andreessen's 2016 assertions that he believed right to be Satoshi following the private signing session. What Manchus glossed over, however, is that Andreessen later retracted his support for Wright. When Andreessen was deposed for Wright's trial against the estate of former friend Dave Kleiman, he testified that he had been bamboozled by Wright, who used gobbledygook proof to demonstrate his possession of Satoshi's private keys. The support of former Bitcoin Foundation director jo uh, John Matonis, God, I haven't heard that dude's name in years, has wrote a blog post called How I Met Satoshi in 2016 After a Private Proof Session with Wright, also featured heavily in Wright's legal team's opening statements. Convincing the likes of Matonis and Andreessen, Manchus argued, the latter of which he described as a very critical person in the beginning, extremely critical, was proof enough of Wright's claim to be Satoshi. In addition to the proof Wright offered privately, Manchus detailed Wright's childhood in Australia, during which he spent time with his granddaddy, Captain Ronald Lindham, learning to code and operate a ham radio in the family ham shack. Oh. Manchus also told the court about Wright's long-standing obsession with Japanese culture confirmed by a quote from Wright's mom in the Satoshi Affair that explained his choice of pseudonym. Satoshi, Manchus said, means ash in Japanese, and Wright chose it because he wanted Bitcoin to take down the legacy financial system and rise like a phoenix from its ashes. It had the added benefit, according to Manchus, of being the Japanese language name of Pokemon character Ash Ketchum. Hmm. Wright's academic achievements and military career, both of which appear to have been exaggerated. For example, Australian public ministry records seem to indicate that Wright was discharged by the Royal Australian Air Force only a year after being accepted into the nine-year officer program, were also presented to the court as evidence that Wright had the skills, knowledge, and experience required to create Bitcoin. Oh, KPMG report during their, their opening statements on Monday. Hoddle and Knott's attorneys told the court that they'd commissioned multinational auditing firm KPMG to authenticate Wright's evidence submitted in the case. The report is expected to show that many documents submitted by Wright are either manipulated or unverifiable, 
and will be discussed when a KPMG rep testifies on Friday. Though the contents of the 73 exhibit report have not yet been made public, Wright's attorneys attempted to preemptively debunk it during the statements on Tuesday, telling the court that there are different reasons for documents to appear manipulated, such as being opened in two different versions of Microsoft Word, that don't necessarily point to intentional manipulation. The current trial in Norway is not the first time Wright's alleged history of submitting false evidence has influenced court's proceedings. In the Kleiman v. Wright trial held in November, lawyers for the plaintiff called witnesses who testified about Wright's business dealings suspected forged signatures and backdated documents. They also referenced Wright's legal issues with the Australian tax office, who concluded after a lengthy investigation that Wright had backdated and forged contracts providing or provided during an audit and was pretending to be Satoshi to get around his tax issues. Wright, for his part, claimed that the ATO was the victim of a hack that resulted in funky documents. (laughs) In Wright's libel suit against British podcaster Peter McCormick, a UK judge ruled that Wright had advanced a deliberately false case and put forward false evidence and awarded him a single British pound in damages. Another key theme of Manchester's opening statement on Tuesday was the hashtag HODL and not used in his March 2019 tweets, quote, or well, hashtag, Craig Wright is a fraud. Yes, I remember that one well. By using a hashtag, Manchus argued, HODL and not amplified his criticisms of Wright by creating a repository for similar tweets using the same hashtag, quote, his statement directly encourages other people to follow up the attack against Craig Wright with the same language, the same form, we are going to see that encouraged a rapid and toxic attack against Craig Wright, Manchus said. He told the court that when Wright complained to Twitter about the hashtag and subsequent criticism, his account was deleted. He also said that the online criticism of Wright spilled over into other areas of social media uh, platforms, including a Telegram group called Bitcoin Plebs. I remember that one. I'm still in that one. That encouraged its approximate 400 members to organize a pleb attack uh, uh, on some shitcoin scammers, which included putting pressure on exchanges to delist these scams. Manchus admitted there was no evidence that Hoddle and Not was involved in this Telegram group, but he told the court, quote, could be that Huddle and Not has nothing to do with these people except they see the tweet and react. But still, we believe that it's as likely or more likely that Huddle and Not himself is more involved than that, and he's in one of these groups that he's taking the initiative here. End quote. Manchus went on to say that the BSV extinction event, referring to the massive delisting of Bitcoin Satoshi's vision, the fork of Bitcoin created by Wright. The members of Bitcoin plebs were angling uh, for was a result, direct or indirect, of Hodlinot's criticism. The exchanges that delisted BSV, however, according to Binance and Kraken, stated they did so because of Wright's behavior, including doxing and suing Hodlinot and others. With opening statements concluded, witness testimony will begin on Wednesday, that's today. Wright and Huddle and Ott are both expected to testify. On Thursday and Friday, the court will hear testimony from additional witnesses. Wright's cousin, Max Lynham, a so far unnamed expert from KPMG who will go over the findings of the report. Dr. Ami Clean, an autism expert who diagnosed Wright with autism spectrum disorder and testified on his behalf at the Kleeman v. Wright trial last year, and Stefan Matthews, an associate of Wright's. Andreessen and Matonis 
are not expected to testify. It's a fucking clown show already. Wow, that didn't take very long at all. I, there's no telling what the hell's going to drop out of this, okay? But here we are yet one more time with Craig Wright in the driver's seat of a bullshit lawsuit against just some guy. All right, so take, take out of this what you will. It's clear that Craig Wright is a fraud. It's clear that he's not Satoshi. Even if he signed a block, I wouldn't give a shit at this point. I mean, if he wanted to destroy the financial system, see, here's the one thing about this. He said that he did all this, and we all know that Bitcoin was done because like, the destruction of the, of the legacy financial system is kind of paramount at this point because it's pretty much just doing nothing but enslaving humanity. And yet, if that's true, if he selected his name Satoshi to be as ash because he wanted to burn it all to the ground and rise like a phoenix, then why is he using the legacy systems and defending the legacy financial systems and the legacy regulatory bodies the way he is if he wanted to burn it all to the ground. This doesn't make any sense. So we'll just leave it there and move on. Uh, Should there be a Bitcoin political party? My answer is fucking no. Robert Hall may have a different story from Bitcoin Magazine, however. As political polarization continues to widen, finding your ideological home in a political party has become difficult. In today's political environment, you must be all in with the party. This adherence to dogmatic orthodoxy applies to both the Republican and Democrat parties. If you stray from the party line on any issue, you are instantly crucified as a turncoat traitor or outcast. There is no room for reasoned political debates like the days of yore before our country even became a country. Back then, people could engage in a deep, deep, and engaging conversation about the issues without being called a heretic for even considering the other side of the argument. Today, all we get is sound bites, 30-second attacks, ads, dunks on Twitter. How can the average person make an informed decision when they can't even get accurate information about, well, anything? Think you can turn to the legacy media for unbiased information? Think again. Political polarization has captured the media as well. Americans are increasingly siloed in the content they consume online and on TV. 17% of Americans are politically polarized based on their TV news consumption, with 8.7% of Americans polarized on the left side of the political aisle versus 8.4% on the right. This kind of polarization only leads to gridlock without anything getting done to improve the country. We have real problems that need to de- we need to deal with, and we don't have the political leadership or the political courage to change the status quo. We have an unsecured southern border, a homelessness problem that has spiraled out of control, and inflation running rampant, making it hard for every single American in this country to live. As our elected leaders focus on these problems, or sorry, are our elected leaders focused on these problems? No, they're too busy with their political theater. Watching politicians today is like watching a soap opera. Or, or a circus, I'm just saying. It's sad, pathetic, and frankly disappointing to watch. We don't have problem solvers in Congress. We have people who think way too highly of themselves and haven't produced anything of value in their life. 
the root of this problem is the credit-based monetary system. Easy money allows people and government to spend beyond their means and create programs that can be paid for with money made out of thin air. Credit-based money encourages polarization because it allows politicians to build a base of voters that will vote for them no matter what. They can say dumb and reckless things and get away with it because they know they will be re-elected. Incumbents have a re-election rate of over 90%. That should scare the piss out of everybody. Politicians are rewarded for fighting the other side, not for compromising to achieve anything. That would be seen as caving to the other side. In the end, we all get screwed for their avarice and short-sightedness. We need new blood in the system. We need visionaries who can see past today and look into the future to see what we can become. If there is a group of people I believe that can do this, it'd be Bitcoiners. And we need visionaries who can put forward a better vision for the country. We need more profound thinkers who think beyond the next election and will plan for decades into the future. We need people who know how much the credit-based monetary system has corrupted our institutions and will have an answer to this corruption. We need leaders who understand that money based on credit will never last. Credit-based monetary systems always fail because humans are too tempted by the allure of power to resist its charm for long. As much as Bitcoiners generally hate to get involved in the political realm, we need them now more than ever. Who else will fight for our points of view if we are not in the halls of power defending Bitcoin at every turn? Who else will protect the Bitcoin protocol from clueless government bureaucrats if we are not in the room determining how to craft regulations? Educating individual lawmakers is no noble and laudable. That should be commended. But is it yielding the long-term results we need to protect Bitcoin? In light of what happened with Tornado Cash being added to the OFAC uh, specially designated nationals and blocked person list, we have a long way to go. How long until these types of sanctions come down on to, to coin joins and Whirlpool? Will they make mixing coins illegal, punishable by fines and jail time? If things keep going the way they are, it's possible. We all love and believe in Bitcoin because of its massive potential to save the world. If we don't rise up to defend it before mass adoption takes root, Bitcoin could be regulated to simply being an investment asset in a store of value. If we want Bitcoin to reach its full potential, we need to organize. Creating a political party is something I believe Bitcoiners could pull off with relative ease. Bitcoiners are some of the most passionate people that I've met. They genuinely care about the world and want to see it change for the better. Just like Bitcoin started from the ground up, a new Bitcoin party is a people's movement that will truly embody the values of America. And I encourage everyone to go to your Secretary of State's website and see what it takes to start a political party in your state. Now is the time. Ah, uh, I, I get the sentiment. And I don't think that, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm just not going to say that this dude's heart is in, the, is in the wrong place. I fully believe that Robert Hall and his opinion is coming from a place of real care, real thought, and, and, and just wants to do something. My opinion on it is that we don't. We don't need to do that. I'm not saying not to go do it. If you want to run as a, as a Bitcoiner for whatever political part, uh, party, and uh, Bruce Fenton did lose his Senate bid yesterday, uh, he had to concede on that point up there in New Hampshire. So he did not win. But I'm wondering if you do go out like Bruce Fenton did go out and, and 
collect money and run on a platform, is it is it is that the best use of your time? Is it the best use of anybody's time? Because what happens if you get in? What happens if we successfully create a fourth political party? Because we got Democrats, Republicans, Libertarian Party, and pretty much nothing else. I think there's like, maybe I think there's a Green Party somewhere out there somewhere. So maybe this would be the fifth party, the Bitcoiner party. Do you really think that you're going to get traction? Even if, I mean, you'll overtake the Green Party. I'll give you that one. You may start getting, you know, taking pieces out of the Libertarian Party. But I don't think it's the best use of time. But let's just posit this. Let's say it did work. You've got a, the Bitcoin party. And you're up there in, in, in Washington and you've got your senators and your, you've got a couple of representatives in there and they're, you know, they're, they're fighting the good fight for Bitcoin. How long before they get worn down by the system that's been in place for 100 years? The conniving, the backstabbing, the double dealing, K Street lobbyists just hounding your ass all the time having to answer all to all of that and then start worrying about what your reelection. That's right. It's it, it, it would happen to everybody. There's not a single person that wouldn't start thinking about the reelection campaign. Like, I don't know for a representative, it's every two years. So you gotta like you do one year's worth of work. And then the, this, your second year is pretty much nothing but campaigning to get reelected. I just, it, like your senator, it's six years. So you do, you know, maybe four or five years worth of work and you start, you know, the, the, the re-election campaign. Is that, a good, is that a good spending of your time? I just don't think so. And even just aside from re-election issues by themselves, what would you be turned into if you were in that environment? See, you, you think you're going to go in, you're going to change everything and everybody's going to listen to you. No, they're not. You're going to go in as a freshman rep or a freshman senator or a freshman whatever, and you're going to get torn to pieces. And all the things that you thought you were going to do don't get done, and that's going to cause depression. I think the fight is outside of the United States Congress, outside of any government's federal government, I think it needs to be outside of all that. I do not think anybody should be entertaining any thoughts whatsoever of going to D.C. or into whatever country's, your, your country's of choices government. Because I, I, I don't think that that's going to be as powerful as you think it is. The real power is going to be that which encircles the walls of each one of these governments and then blow the fucking horn and the walls will come down. And you just let the, the organism die all by itself because it's they're all on the ropes. We don't have to push that much to get them to fall over the edge. However, we do need to talk about this one. This South Korean government has issued the arrest warrant for Terra founder Duke Kwan. Ezra Reguera has it for Cointelegraph. Yep, they want to arrest his ass. While the 
LUNC community rejoices, rejoices because of a potential comeback for the Terra Luna Classic token. The founder of the Terraform Labs, Du Quan, is now facing a warrant of arrest from South Korean authorities. The court located in Seoul reportedly issued a warrant of arrest for Quan and five other people who are currently located in Singapore. According to the prosecutor's office in South Korea, the Terra founder is facing allegations of violating the country's capital markets law. In May, what the terror community first suspected to be a FUD attack became one of the most devastating market crashes in crypto history, triggering the loss of millions of assets from investors of Terra USD, now renamed Terra USD Classic, and Terra Luna, which is also rebranded to Luna Classic. The UST stablecoin started to drift away from its United States dollar peg, dropping to an all-time low of $0.006 in June. Apart from UST, Luna, an asset once, that once reached a peak of $119 in April, dropped massively to an all-time low of 0.000009 United States dollars, causing suicide hotlines to be pinned on the project's Reddit community site. The terror crash also affected various decentralized finance protocols, leading to an 80% and above decline for projects that were associated with the stablecoin. On August the 17th, Kwan hired attorneys from a law firm based in South Korea just a few days after saying that the authorities have not yet reached out to him. According to a report, the Terra founder delivered a letter of appointment to the department responsible for investigating the Terra collapse. The Terra founder also broke his silence on August the 16th in an attempt to clear his name from various allegations. However, despite Kwan's efforts, community members still criticized the Terra CEO comparing his situation to the creator of Tornado Cash, who was arrested for writing a privacy code. So there you go. At least somebody is pissed off enough to try to arrest Du Quan. So the question is, are they successful? Do they actually get their hands on the guy? Does he go on the run? Or if, he do, if they do get his hands on the guy, does he fight it and beat it in court in South Korea? It'll be interesting to see which way this goes. I think he's probably going to hightail it to the Caribbean, but what do I know? Bitcoin hash rate hits new highs as price stays flat. What it means for miners. Namcios, Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin's total hash rate hit a new all-time high, according to Coinmetrics data, only weeks after the end of a two-month capitulation period for the industry. Against a more challenging environment, miners are put to the test as to whether they can maintain profitability. Balance sheets are falling under stress as price remains mostly flat, while hash rate and mining difficulty keep increasing. A broad miner capitulation started in the beginning of the summer as the Bitcoin price took a deep plunge, erasing all gains made in the previous year. Pressured most public miners who have previously committed to holding their BTC began selling their daily mined Bitcoin to cover operating costs amid diminishing margins. Later, some would also start selling the BTC that they had put in cold storage. Bitcoin mining is a self-regulated market where players aim to find the cheapest energy sources and most favorable jurisdictions available around the globe in an effort to shrink costs and maximize profits. As more players join the market, it becomes more difficult to mine Bitcoin. As difficulty increases, miners who are operating on low margins get flushed out of the market. To maintain 10 minutes between blocks on average, the network adjusts the mining difficulty to the downside, making it a bit easier to mine Bitcoin and enabling other miners to join the industry. 
with hash rate now making new highs. And a Bitcoin price struggling to show signs of a sustained recovery, miners are facing a challenging environment. Quote, the big issue for miners right now, I think, is that energy costs have gone up while hash rate has gone up and Bitcoin prices maintained low. Fred Thiel, CEO of NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner Marathon Digital Holdings, told Bitcoin Magazine. However, according to Thiel, not all players in the industry are hit equally. Quote, those miners who are well-positioned, well-capitalized, and can operate from a position of strength are going to benefit from this. Marathon is among them. Quote, our models have been built around the fact that we believe that for the balance of this year, Bitcoin is going to grind along kind of where it is now, up and down a bit. So as a company, we plan around that scenario, he said. When it comes to global hash rate pressuring higher, Teal claimed Marathon is in a good position as its own growth not only cuts back on the effects of the new all-time high, but also contributes to that higher reading itself. Quote, we're focused on growing our hash rate very significantly from three exahashes to 23 exahashes by mid next year. So we're actually one of the companies contributing to that growth in hash rate. End quote. The executive forecast that hash rate will keep trending higher throughout the year as thousands of ordered but yet to be delivered machines from fellow big industry players get deployed in farms across the globe. Quote, there were a lot of orders for miners that were publicly disclosed last year and earlier this year, so you just assume people are going to follow through with those deployments. The same cannot be said for small players. Quote, I think the people who aren't following through tend to be smaller miners. They're well capitalized, or rather, they're less well capitalized. They have problems financing the purchase of the miners, or they're in a position where their energy costs have gone a little upside down, he added. Miners enjoyed a prolonged honeymoon with profits in the past two years as a steep bull market insured for the or ensued for the Bitcoin price, racketing incredible returns in dollar terms on hodled coins. Miners saw their margins balloon as Bitcoin touched new highs. That reality prompted many companies to leverage up their businesses and take on debt to expand operations, a strategy that went south quickly as the Bitcoin price started to plunge. Now with rising hash rate, even more stress is put on these miners. The new high in Bitcoin's hash rate comes 18 months after the Chinese government banned Bitcoin mining altogether, a move that cut the network's hash rate in half as local miners turned off their machines and began relocating their operations overseas. As a result, the United States share of global Bitcoin hash rate increased sharply as the country posed itself as one of the main destinations for the outcast businesses. Kazakhstan and Russia also welcomed the machines. However, the United States, which according to data from the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, currently houses about 37% of Bitcoin's global hash rate, has itself begun to show some signs of hostility towards the industry. Driven by energy consumption worries, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy published a detailed report last week recommending that the Biden administration ensure the development of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency at large in the country is accountable to concerns over climate change. In its over 30 pages, the document, which is the fruit of a Biden executive order on digital assets from March 2022, argues that while proof-of-work mining can help the energy industry and the climate in some specific areas, its net impact to both is negative. 
The OSTP report went as far as to recommend the administration and Congress to consider limiting or banning the use of proof of work in the United States altogether. One of the positive acknowledgments made by the report relates to the usage of Bitcoin mining as a baseload energy demand mechanism. Quote, you're providing extra capacity to the grid when it's needed, and you're not really a parasitic load on the grid because you're behind the meter using energy that would otherwise be wasted, Teal told Bitcoin Magazine. Quote, if you position Bitcoin mining behind the meter at a renewable site, you are incentivizing more renewable production, end quote. Teal also highlighted that given that it's midterm election year in the United States, most of the harsh language in the report might be purely part of political plays. Quote, there's a lot of politicking that happens, and some of this is positioning by politicians, he argued. Quote, I personally don't believe that there will be a wholesale ban on proof of work, end quote. Though not possible, uh, it does appear that an eventual ban on proof of work is very unlikely in uh, sorry, though not impossible, it does appear that an eventual ban on proof of work is very unlikely in the United States given the nature of its government compared to China's, as well as the extent to which Bitcoin mining is integrated into power grids and communities in the country. However, were such an event to come to fruition, the network would still be prepared to withstand such an attack. The same way the network didn't perish when mining was banned in China, the country with the highest share of hash rate at that time, it is well positioned to show a similar outcome in a potential U.S. ban. Notwithstanding, the network might even be able to keep thriving in the U.S. during a ban, which is evidenced by the fact that there are still many machines hashing in China, according to CCAF, the Asian country still houses, get this, 20% of the global Bitcoin hash rate. Bitcoin mining in China is completely banned, y'all. And yet, China represents 20% of global Bitcoin hash rate. Let that sink in. I've said it before. I'm going to go ahead and say it again. It is a federal crime in the United States to possess, transport, or imbibe marijuana. It's a federal offense. It's a federal offense. If you are on the grounds of the Supreme Court and you smoke a joint, it is a federal charge. Possession and probably intent to distribute if you've got marijuana in more than one bag. And that's, that'll get you 25 years, bro. It'll get you 25. And yet, I'm in Washington State right now. And guess what? I can go down to the store and I can go buy me some pot. If you don't think that this won't happen with Bitcoin mining, all eyes on Texas, please, at this point, then you're fooling yourself. Unless things go really sideways in Texas and we get like, let's say Governor Abbott loses the election. I don't know. Let's just turn it all the way over to like Texas turns blue as far as the governorship is concerned. It's there's too much at stake in Texas for them to just say, you know what, we're just going to ban mining in Texas. Not going to happen. It's just not. And therein lies the Tenth Amendment. It is not specifically written in the Constitution of the United States that states cannot use, produce, or produce and use as they see fit electricity. 
because it's not expressly written in the Constitution's body, it falls to the Tenth Amendment. And the Tenth Amendment states this. If it's not expressly delineated in the body of the Constitution of the United States, then it then falls to the individual states to make the decision. Just saying. Just saying. So I don't give this shit any credence whatsoever, but we do have to run the numbers. CNBC futures and commodities, oil, West Texas up one and a half points to $88.65. Brent North Sea up 1.15% to $94.24. Natural gas is, oh shit, natural gas is up 10%, just below it, 9.98%. That might as well be, oh, now I just switched over, 10.18% to $9.12 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline is up 2% to $2.53 a gallon. Shiny metal rocks appear mixed. Gold down 0.6% to $1,707. Silver is up a third of a point. Platinum is up two and a quarter points. Copper is down 1.13% and palladium is up two and a half points. Uh, We have the Dow down scant 0.09%. S&P likewise, but up. 0.12%. NASDAQ is up almost a half point and the S&P is down a quarter of a point. Real money struggling today at $19,752. We have 2.2 million BTC changing hands in the 24 hour period. We have uh, 91, that's 91,858 BTC every hour on the hour with an average transaction value of 8.43 BTC, a median transaction value of 0.026 BTC or just at $500. Uh, Block times are sky high, 11 minutes and 43 seconds. Uh, yeah, I see why (laughs) I'll get to it in a second. 0.13 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis, 16.8 BTC taken in fees overall in the last 24 hour period. And with a 13.21% drop in hash rate, we're back down to just over 200 with 205.7 exahashes per second. Uh, shitcoin indicator is doge 0.06 United States pennies. So there you go with that one. We have 4,121 transactions waiting on three blocks to clear. There is a $380.5 billion market capitalization, which is 3.39% of gold's market cap. If you so choose, you may purchase 11.7 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,150,429.67 of, and 4,776.5 of those are in the Lightning Network valued at $94.9 million, being run over 17,209 nodes, sporting 85,108 total payment channels, 69.7% of all of it's being run over on tour, and that's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use. Beef Initiative, the uh, Food Intelligence Summit is occurring this weekend in Georgia. All right. Uh, September 16th through the 18th, 
What's happening to the food, food supply, future of ranching and nutrition? Where does Bitcoin play a role? We'll take a look at the Food Intelligence Summit this weekend. Tickets are still available, guys. Beefinitiative.com forward slash tickets. That's beefinitiative.com forward slash tickets. Uh, say hi to my good friend Slim if you get a chance to go over there and see him. Uh, he's not a sponsor of the show. I'm kind of a sponsor of his show, though not monetarily. I just, I'm just going to plug Beef Initiative stuff for him because I feel it's the right thing to do. Now, oh God, let's just, yeah, let's go ahead and do, let's go ahead and do this one. If <clears throat> um, W core to push on with Ethereum proof of work fork 24 hours after the merge. Okay, the merge is supposed to happen sometime today. I don't know when. I kind of don't care, but it's supposed to happen today. But as I've been saying all along, it's not like the Ethereum miners that are mining Ethereum now are just going to give up the ghost and sell all their GPUs on the open market. No, they're not. They're going to create their own fork. I'm still thinking that Ethereum Classic is going to be the biggest beneficiary of this entire thing, but I could totally be wrong because ETHW Core, I don't think has anything to do with Ethereum Classic. Let's find out more from Stephen Cat or Kate, not sure how to pronounce it, Cointelegraph. The long-awaited Ethereum merge. Just around the corner, but not everyone is excited about the major upgrade. A group calling themselves ETHW Core has voiced its opposition to the change and is set to conduct a hard fork within one day after the merge. Under the project name ETHPOW and with the token ETHW, ETHW Core plans to split off in the main Ethereum blockchain and maintain a proof-of-work version to keep Ethereum mining alive beyond the merge. Quote, ETHW mainnet will happen within 24 hours after the merge. The exact time will be announced one hour before launch with a countdown timer and everything including final code, binaries, config files, node info, RPC explorer, etc., etc., and will all be made public when the time's up, the group wrote in a Tuesday tweet. The merge will shift the Ethereum network away from its current proof-of-work mining model to a proof-of-stake consensus mechanism, phasing out miners and replacing them with validators. Pausing to make a comment. That's what we already have. We already have this. It's been around for 100 years. Longer than that when you really get down to it. But I digress. In their August 29th open letter explaining the motivations, the group outlined why their opinion, quote, POS is indeed a game changer, but only in bad ways, end quote. Further quote, it is only prudent to continue a proof of work Ethereum, which should be a no brainer for those who champion openness and the free market as there is no downside. After all, if POS Ethereum is really so great, why be afraid of competition, end quote. However, many in the community believe the fork is motivated by money rather than ideological differences, and serious concerns have been voiced over the fork's chain ID and whether it will increase the risk of replay attacks and other hacks. God, it's like being back in 2017 with Bitcoin, I swear to God. Former Ethereum Foundation member Hudson Jameson wondered on September the 8th why it was launching after the actual merge. Quote, 
I got huge doubts they will gain much hash power if they launch post-merge, he wrote. Hash power will be on the other chains by then, and the value prop of Ethereum POW is tenuous already, he wrote. Coinbase Cloud Protocol Specialist Victor Binnen reportedly contacted the ETHW Core for clarification on the issue. The result of the query was not posted. If all goes to plan, the Ethereum merge is currently less than a day away. At the time of writing, ETH POW token is trading at $29.71, but only exists as a futures ticker. Conceived in anticipation of the upcoming fork, the price of Ether currently sits at $1,599, down 2.26% over the past seven days. All right. I... I mean, I know you're yelling at me already. I I can hear you. I heard you midway through the damn article, but this shit's going on. This shit's going on. And remember, just remember when Bitcoin was pretty much just Bitcoin. Yeah, there was a couple of weird forks here and there in 2015 and 2016, but then, then we enter into 2017. And if you weren't there at the time, it was a really, really it was ugly. It was a bad feeling all the way around. It was bear market territory or going into bear market territory. And we got um, uh, Roger Ver launching the Bitcoin cast chain. And he did so in congruence with Calvin Air, the pedophile, and the fraud, Craig Wright. They all got together and they launched BCH. And not very many months, we're not talking years, months after that, Craig and Calvin had a falling out with Roger Ver. So they say, this was always the plan in my opinion. And they forked BCH into Bitcoin's Satoshi vision. What we saw was basically carnivory, or not carnivory, um, oh God, um, Cannibalism, that straight up cannibalism, starting with the cannibal, cannibalization of Bitcoin's, act, the actual Bitcoin. And then it went to BCH and then that got cannibalized itself and it was just cannibals all the way down. A lot of people came back to, to Bitcoin, but there's still all this garbage hanging around. Well, that also caused a lot of other forks of Bitcoin. You got, I, I think it, at the the time that I'm recording this, there's like 50 Bitcoin forks and they're all worthless. You know, they have some like, you know, paper value. They say some of them are worth two bucks a coin. Some are worth 17 bucks a coin. You got shit like BSV, which is like, I don't know, a hundred bucks a coin, whatever it is. But it's just cannibalism all the way down. And it caused, it caused a pretty good Bitcoin winner. What's going to happen here? I don't think it'll be the same because we've got, at this point, we've got institutions that are backing the proof of stake thing. But again, at least here, okay, at least here, they're saying, I don't know if I believe them, but the ETH POW guys are saying that proof of stake is bad and that proof of work is the only way to continuously be consistent with security as far as Security of the chain, because you actually have real work going into it. Whereas with validators, I can just tell you if, you're, if your transactions are valid, if I have 32 ETH, two, 30, sorry, 32 ETH, 
and have locked up that 32 ETH as a validator. And then I get a vote on whether or not your transactions are valid. But 64% of all the Ethereum that's locked up is locked up by five, count them, five entities. I told you that to like either Friday or Monday or something like that. We, we, I read you that story. 64% of all ETH that's locked up in, valid, in validators is owned by five entities. What do you think is going to happen? See, that's where this whole proof of work thing becomes important when it comes down to the, what happens in the aftermath of the Ethereum fork. And we don't even know if the fork is going to happen. Okay, because we don't know if the switch to proof of stake is going to work. It's, it has, they've tried this several times, ladies and gentlemen. They've, they've tried several different times starting in 2017 and probably more uh, longer ago than that. And it doesn't work. This time, I think they have a very, oh, let's see, not a good chance. I'm, I'm, the developers seem to think that they can pull this off this time. So maybe something's changed. Maybe they got a, their bugs ironed out. I don't know. But we still have yet to see whether or not it, it converts to proof of stake. Now, the, the minute after it goes to proof of stake is not time enough to tell what kind of damage may occur. We don't know. It's going to be days, possibly weeks, months, and let's say let's say five months go by and it just working like a goddamn charm. Then the other attacks start happening. The fact that it is centralized, the fact that there was a set like a 70 million coin pre-mine or whatever it was, the fact that five entities hold 64% of all the validate of all the validators, they're just going to tell you whether or not your transaction is valid. And there is no privacy on that chain. Keep that in mind. If you get giddy about this shit, I'm just saying, be very, very, very careful. Back to Bitcoin, which is the only thing that actually matters. Bitcoin adoption begins on the ground. Ray Youssef, uh, ooh, he hasn't written one in a while. He's writing this one for Bitcoin Magazine. While Bitcoin adoption continues to grow around the world, education remains one of our biggest challenges. Financial literacy should be a right, but in many places around the world, people are denied this or even worse misinformed. But how do you tackle a subject like Bitcoin? In my experience, it's the one-on-one -on -one connections that have made the strongest impact. The foundation of any good relationship starts with trust. I learned this at a really young age. When I was a kid working at my parents' newsstand in New York City, I often encountered customers from all walks of life and had to navigate how I approached every situation. To give the customer what they needed, I realized I could only do that by listening to them. This job taught me patience and empathy, allowing me to understand customer problems early on and find the solutions to help them. When I started Paxful in 2015, I took the majority of customer service calls that came through. I'll never forget the first call I took from a frantic customer who found my cell phone number on our website. She was from Louisiana and told me that she was going to be evicted from her apartment because she was overdue on rent. This was an unbanked American woman who had never had a bank account, never wanted one, but she needed to buy an ad with Bitcoin to sell some stuff to make ends meet. 
I taught her that if she could buy a gift card for a small amount, that she could convert it to Bitcoin. 20 minutes later, she called back, gift card in hand, and I walked her through the process. Our conversation lasted about two hours, but by the end, she was making her first transaction. A few days later, we started to have hundreds of calls coming in. We ended up guiding nearly a thousand people through our site, and our traders were scrambling to fill orders all around the world. While global Bitcoin adoption starts and ends with education, education is nothing without patience, trust, and good customer service. Throughout my Bitcoin journey, I've come across some incredible people who are working to increase education and make differences around the world. People like activist Farida Nubarama, who is fighting for democracy in the country of Togo, the Suleiman brothers who are empowering their community in Nigeria with Bitcoin, and Calcasa, who spreads knowledge about Bitcoin to secluded regions like Ethiopia. One interesting story comes from Paco de la India, a man who has made it his mission to visit 40 countries in 400 days, living primarily off of Bitcoin. Along his journey, he is spreading mass awareness of Bitcoin. He educates strangers on the streets and hosts events for communities encouraging people to use Bitcoin to access financial freedom. It's stories like de la India's that remind us how small actions can bring great change. The key to global Bitcoin adoption stems from a bottom-up approach. That's why at Paxful we're invested or we've invested so much of our time on the ground, meeting with users, hosting workshops, and organizing campus tours. My experience has taught me that you should never underestimate the power of human connections. It's only with education, patience, and understanding that we can reach mass adoption and provide equal access to finance anyone, anywhere. All right, that's Ray Youssef. He hasn't written uh, anything that I've seen in a while, but I always love his stuff because it's just solid signal. He's right, but everything's customer service. I'll tell you a, a quick story. When I was at Texas Tech University at the library and I was working there and I worked there for like 10 years, one of the, I think within the first year or the second year, the dean of the library, yes, it's a university library and some uh, universities have their own dean because it's a school called a all hands meeting and he did he did one every every month and he asked the crowd all which was all the employees a question and the question was who in this room is engaged in customer service well there's a lot of you know there was a lot of librarians that wrote you know raised their hand because they're customer facing all the time but you know i, I think a good 60 maybe 70 percent of the people did not raise their hand except I rose my hand, but I was not a librarian. Why did I raise my hand? Because I was in customer service, even though I wasn't technically customer facing. Who were my customers? Any one of my colleagues that asked me to do something. That was my customer. Do you, you get it? A lot of people have an interesting take on what they think customer service is. But I can guarantee you this, 95% of you all, if you've ever had a job at all, even if you were not customer facing, you had customers and you still have customers. You are in customer service. I don't care if you're an engineer at NASA, you're in customer service. I don't care if you're a software engineer 
for, I don't know, the library in Montana. You are customer service. If you keep that in your head, it will do better things for you than anything else. But I'll tell you what will be the most damaging. If you staunchly believe that you have nothing to do with customer service, everything becomes difficult. Everything becomes difficult. Let's move on to Treasury won't punish dusted celebrities, will allow users to recover funds from Tornado Cash. Sonder Lutz has it for Decrypt.co. Breaking a month-long silence since banning Ethereum coin mixing tool Tornado Cash, the United States Treasury Department on Tuesday announced a path for Tornado Cash users to recover funds and also addressed other pressing questions about the implications of its sanctions. The Treasury Department's move to ban Tornado Cash in August sent the crypto community into a frenzy over privacy and government oversight and left many wondering whether their everyday crypto activity could lead to criminal charges. The Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control argued at the time that Tornado Cash facilitated money laundering and, of course, terrorism. OFAC will provide an avenue for Tornado Cash users to legally withdraw deposited funds from a now blacklisted platform, according to a Tuesday update to the Frequently Asked Questions portion of its website. Individuals who deposited funds onto or into Tornado Cash prior to August the 8th, the date the Treasury banned American citizens from interacting with the tool, will now be able to request a special license from OFAC that, if granted, would allow them to access and withdraw the funds. More on that at the end of this. OFAC would have a favorable licensing policy towards such applications provided that the transaction did not involve other sanctionable conduct, the Treasury noted. In addition, according to the updated website, individuals who have been non-consensually sent small amounts of Tornado Cash-affiliated funds will likely not be at risk of criminal prosecution. OFAC sanctions on Tornado Cash also blacklisted a number of wallet addresses associated with the tool. Interacting with those addresses in any manner is theoretically tantamount to conducting business with a hostile government or terrorist organization. In the days following the sanctions, an anonymous Tornado Cash user trolled a number of celebrities, including Jimmy Fallon and Logan Paul, by dusting them with small amounts of funds and therefore potentially exposing them to criminal liability. The government announced today that it will not prioritize enforcement against individuals like those celebrities who have received unsolicited and nominal amounts of virtual currency of Tornado Cash. Such a position, though, leaves much up in the air. What amount of cryptocurrency the Treasury would consider nominal in this context was not clarified. Further, how the Treasury will be able to effectively assess which transactions with these blacklisted addresses are genuinely unsolicited and which are not remains unclear. The Treasury also stated that while it remains illegal for an American citizen to conduct any transactions with Tornado Cash, disseminating information about the tool itself, including its underlying open source code, is in fact legal. In the hours following the Treasury's announcement of sanctions against Tornado Cash in early August, software development platform GitHub, which is owned by Microsoft, removed Tornado Cash's open source code from its website as a precautionary measure. Since then, numerous individuals, including a Johns Hopkins professor, have taken steps to publicly preserve Tornado Cash's underlying code to fight back against the prospect 
that the United States government, in banning the service, was also banning source code distribution and scientific speech. Quote, interacting with open source code itself, uh, you know, in a way that does not involve a prohibited transaction with Tornado Cash is not prohibited, the Treasury stated today. U.S. persons would not be prohibited by U.S. sanctions regulations from copying the open source code and making it available online for others to view, as well as discussing, teaching about, or including open source code in written publications such as textbook, absent additional facts, end quote. The stance marks a departure from those taken by other nations, including the Netherlands, which argued that the act of writing code alone for an instrument such as Tornado Cash may be punishable if the code is designed for the sole purpose of committing criminal acts. Oh, that's bad in itself. Days after the Treasury sanctions on Tornado Cash, the Dutch government arrested 29-year-old developer, Will I will not say his name, in connection with Tornado Cash. He remains in custody. Okay, let's back up through this just a little bit. Um, the Netherlands has argued that the act of writing code alone for an instrument such as Tornado Cash, quote, may be punishable if the code is designed for the sole purpose of committing criminal acts. Do you see the problem? How do you know if it was designed to do that? I can commit a criminal act with a knife, a truck, a plane, a firearm. I can throw a pit bull at somebody because I want to like, hopefully the pit bull will chew his face off. I don't know, but it's a criminal act. Was the pit bull designed to do the criminal act? Many of you might argue, yes, let's take another one. A German shepherd. Let's throw, I throw a German shepherd at somebody. Was the German shepherd designed to do the criminal act? Probably not. It, that's a problematic statement at best. And criminal act. You know, what's criminal, what's not criminal today may be criminal tomorrow. What's criminal yesterday may not be criminal, criminalized today. So that's a problem. But when you put designed for the sole purpose of committing criminal acts in a sentence, holy shit, that is ambiguity's poster child. Now, going back up here, let me see if I can find this thing. Uh, do, 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 where was I at? Yeah, 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 here it is, here it is, this one. Individuals who deposited funds into Tornado Cash will now be able to request a special license from OFAC that, if granted, would allow them access and withdraw of the funds. A license. You see where this one's going. You see where this one's going. Everywhere that the United States government can block off an on-ramp or an off-ramp and cause you to KYC yourself on the other side, or rather to get to the other side, is basically saying papers, please. And if you don't have the papers, the United States government will be more than happy to let you fill out a form with all your information on it so that they know exactly what funds you have. More than ever, non-KYC Bitcoin is kind of imperative. Now, I've got some KYC and some non-KYC, but even the some a lot of the KYC that I got Bitcoin, I got a long time ago. I mean, long, so far back in the chain, it's just not even funny. 
you'd have to do a lot of pickings, even in crypt in, in, in uh, crypto analytics, you'd have to do a lot of picking, a lot of picking. You really want me. You'd really have to want me. And I don't have that much Bitcoin to really want me, but be that as it may, you see where this is going. You have to have, they froze tornado cash, which by itself is problematic, clearly. But now to get your money out, you got to apply for a license. What do you think that application form looks like? That's right. As bad as you can possibly imagine. That's what that application form for that license looks like. And that shit's going to be stained forever. Forever. You'll never be able to get away from that shit. Now, the whole dusted celebrities thing, I'm not even going to get into that because it's bullshit. The two things here are, what the hell did the Netherlands mean by purposely designing code to commit criminality? And then this one, having to have a license to get your shit back off. Think about this in terms of Mt. Gox. Mt. Gox wasn't all that up on KYC, but now that all that shit got frozen, when they finally do start distributing that Bitcoin to the owners, are they going to distribute it to like anonymous wallets? I'll bet you they won't. I'll bet you you'll, you'll need a license or, or if they're already doing it, then they're requiring a license or some kind of off-ramp KYC to be able to get that Bitcoin. Be very careful about all this shit. Don't assume anything other than they hate you and they want you to die. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Okay, Wednesday hump day, hump day dad joke. Uh, Thinking of having my ashes stored in a glass urn. Remains to be seen. Oh, mortician's dad joke. That's awesome. If you want to support the show, podcasting 2.0 is the way to go. Fountain app. Even though it's kind of glitching right now because I'm still on top at number one, and honestly, I shouldn't be. There are many shows that are better than mine, okay? I, I like what I do, but I also have to be a realist. I'm not number one because this show kicks ass. I'm number one because there was a glitch, right? <laughs> in Fountain App, but expect that. We're in podcasting 2.0 land, people. With the fact that you can stream me Satoshis while I stream you these dulcet tones real time is amazing. And I'm, I am amazed that this shit works at all. It was a promise that was delivered to us a long time ago and it's working, but it's not going to just be smooth as glass, but without users getting into the fountain app or the breeze wallet and using the internal podcasting app in the breeze wallet, or Sphinx Chat. Back in the day, they were the first ones that had the ability to do podcasting and some other stuff with uh, value for value. And then Adam Curry comes in with, he'd been thinking about this shit forever. And then once Adam Curry and Bitcoin collided, it was like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, man. It was a beautiful thing. And it's going to continue to be a beautiful thing when you can send me a boostagram and ask me a question about, I don't know, Backyard chickens. Hey man, what do you, how, how do you, like if I, I got a shit ton of compacted soil and uh, what would you do about it? 
And and you give me like, I don't know, some you boost me with like 500, 5,000, 50,000, you know, Satoshis. I will answer you on the show. If you want to announce your wedding, I will announce it on the show. Just give me a boostogram. But the fact that we can do all this, not only is it amazing, it needs to be represented in reality. And reality is that when I tell you and I guide you to something like the Fountain app, and you get it and you're like, oh, this is going to work great. And then all of a sudden there's some glitches. Dude, chill. It's, we're, we're forging a path into a new world. You think, do you think that Columbus sailing across the freaking Atlantic wasn't fraught with difficulty in the middle of the ocean? That they only found difficulty when they landed on land? No, hell no. Shit, they probably lost a few people to scurvy or something like that had to throw them overboard let the sharks eat them whatever it is that they did back then it was i'm sure they ran into a storm i'm sure that there was all kinds of shit that happened but just chill and let us work out the kinks oscar mary over there at fountain app is is i'm sure trying to figure out what the hell happened why am i on top why have i been on top for 72 hours the dude you know his podcast is okay but shit it ain't that okay it's not like i'm beating 15 year old, no agenda. Okay. Way more listeners by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Okay. So just bear with us. Let us have our fun. Stream me Satoshis, throw me some boostograms. I'll get you on the air. Then I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.